0: you're listening to the keeping up on canada podcast where we pull headlines and articles and present them in a fun show that won't put you to sleep reliable relatable redefining what a new show can be now Now. here's your host tyler robertson Welcome back to the Keeping Up On Canada podcast. We have been out of studio for a couple of weeks, so my apologies on that. Today I have a special format podcast, and I will preface this with a warning that some terms may be considered offensive in today's society, but is only to be historically accurate with the events covered. Some topics may also be sensitive to some listeners. I've taken some time away to analyze how to present the shocking news of the 215 children found in the mass grave in Kamloops. I'm sure this podcast won't be the first time you're hearing of it. It was a quiet week in the news when the bombshell dropped on the Friday morning that 215 children had been discovered in a mass grave near Kamloops, B.C. with the use of ground-penetrating radar technology. This quickly swept national and international news as we all tried to process what we were hearing and reading. This search was conducted by the local tribe of whose names I will not attempt, as my fear would be dishonoring the name through pronunciation. It is widely available for you to search at your leisure. This, sadly, will be the first of many, as hundreds more have been discovered just in the time it's taken me to prepare this. We were all taught at school about the residential school system to varying degrees, but after a couple of weeks worth of research, I was stunned to discover I actually knew nothing about it. Yes, I was aware that Indigenous children were taken from their homes and stripped of their culture and language, but that's all I really recalled from my schooling. Perhaps that's a downfall on my part, but with this news, I really dug into the history to educate myself on what really happened. My goal today is to share what I've learned so that everyone can be educated on the fundamentals of the residential school. I think many Canadians, or certainly people my age, remember the residential school system as something that happened a long time ago, in a previous life, in generations past. But that really isn't the case. The last residential school only closed in 1996, a mere 25 years ago. In fact, we only have 25 years of our 154 years of federation without a residential school system and a system in which British colonies would capture Indigenous children for labour or whitewashing dating back even further than that. These were called mission schools and were run by the Catholic and Anglican Church. Canada is literally built on the system of Europeans colonizing the Indigenous people. The first record of this dates back to the 1600s when British settlers would discover Indigenous tribes resting on resource-rich land and decided they wanted it. They came with size and numbers and bullied their way into this land. They showed up and said, hey, this looks like a nice place where we can get used to. The coal, the gold and other materials were of great value to the British and they decided they were going to move in and that's what they did. But how exactly do you convince thousands of Indigenous people to surrender their land and resources? Simple, you take their children and make sure the next generation buys into a system where the white man will bring wealth and prosperity and the culture and language you grew up with no longer matters. In some cases, parents would surrender their children to the schools after being convinced by the church that they would prosper, but we'll get into that later on. I want to break down a timeline of how all of this came to be. We will go through it first and unpack sections later. The first boarding school began in 1831 in Brampton, Ontario, named the Mohawk Institute. In 1845, the Bagot Commission is presented to the Legislative Assembly and it is determined that separating Indigenous children from their homes was the easiest format to convince an entire race that the white European way of life was superior and to whitewash a culture from their previous ways. It applauds the Mohawk Institute and it is to be considered a model for other schools. In 1857, the Gradual Civilization Act is installed, requiring all Indian status and Métis males over the age of 21 to read, write, and speak either English or French, and to choose a government-approved surname. In exchange, they'd be awarded 50 acres of land, as long as no affiliation to any tribes or treaty rights. But let me be clear. These acres were no prized land where they would see great yield. They would often be given the worst section of land in their area, and it would be considered a gift from the government. This was all by design. The intentions were never to see the Indian or Métis succeed, but it would be sold as such as a reward for adhering to their wishes. In 1867, the Constitution Act, or the British North America Act, assumes responsibility over the First Nations and the land reserved for them. The authority would eventually assume the education of First Nations too. April 12, 1876, the Historical Indian Act is introduced. Its sole purpose is to eradicate the Indigenous culture and assimilate to the newly-found Euro-Canadian society. A short time later, in 1883, Canada's first Prime Minister, Sir John A. Macdonald, authorizes the creation of the residential school system based on the Davin Report. This report, constructed by Nicholas Davin, saw him travel to various locations in what is now the United States Territory to observe what other British settlers were doing to assimilate the Native American people. His report concluded that the most efficient way to assimilate the children was to remove them from their homes and put them into a residential school where they would be stripped of any and all language, cultural practices, and heritage. They would be taught English and French and how to work. Most kids were removed at the age of 5 and even as young as 3, and would stay upwards to 17 years old. This would be funded by the federal government and conducted by the church, prominently the Anglican and Catholic Church. Each student was allotted a set amount of funding so they would pack them in like sardines, and as you can imagine in those days, illness and disease ran like wildfire. We'll discuss the effects of that shortly. By 1896, the number of residential schools had reached 40, spanning all across Canada. In 1907, Dr. Peter Henderson Bryce, the chief medical officer for Canada's Department of Interior and Indian Affairs, reveals that Indigenous children are dying at extreme rates, in some cases 25% of enrolled students and 69% of attendees after leaving the school. That's impossible to even imagine. Survivors and family of students recall the older children having to prepare the mass graves we touched on earlier, to bury the fellow students that had passed. In 1920, it becomes mandatory for every First Nation child between the ages of 7 and 16 to attend a residential school. This policy is also loosely applied to the Métis and Inuit children. On the first day of 1922, Dr. Bryce publishes The Story of a National Crime, exposing the government suppression of the health and conditions of the residential schools. Bryce argues the Ministry of Indian Affairs has neglected the health of the children and notes a criminal disregard for the treaty pledges. By 1930, the program has grown to 80 schools and 17,000 students. Over the next two decades, various provinces and territories investigate the education levels of the Métis and Inuit children and suggest the government enroll them in the system as well. On the first day of 1948, the Thunderchild Indian Residential School in Delma, Saskatchewan is destroyed by a fire. Four students are investigated for arson as cheers roar while the building burns. This pattern continues across Canada in protest of the residential schools. In 1951, amendments are made to the Indian Act that would give jurisdiction to the federal government over child welfare on reserves, allowing them to forcibly remove remaining First Nations, Métis, and Inuit children from their homes and placed mostly into white households, furthering the whitewash of cultural identity. This is later named the 60s Scoop. In 1955, the residential school system expands to northern Canada, where church-run schools take over Inuit education. As we move into the 60s, we see the first closure of some residential schools, and 60s scoop practice takes shape as children are moved into predominantly white households. The practice would also expand into police removing children from their homes and place them in foster and adopted white households. 1966, Cheney Wenjack, and I apologize if I have that pronunciation wrong, a 12-year-old from the Cecilia Jeffrey Residential School dies after escaping the school. A short time later, a coroner's inquest into his death is held, and the all-white jury finds that the residential school system causes tremendous emotional and psychological issues. They recommend a study into the practices and see if it is still viable. In 1969, the federal government assumes all responsibility for the schools, no longer requiring the church to administer. By 1979, Canada is down to 28 schools. In 1990, Phil Fontaine, the head of the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs, speaks of the abuse he suffered at the Fort Alexander School. He calls for a public inquiry into the schools, which the federal government begins in 1991. Prime Minister Brian Mulroney begins the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People, a mandate to study the relationship between the Indigenous peoples, the Government of Canada, and the public. On the first day of 1996, the final school closes in Punicky, Saskatchewan. Later that year, the Commission finds the Indian Act measures were oppressive and that recognition of Indian in Canadian law often had nothing to do with a person of Indian descent. So that's the history of the residential school system. That was hard and heavy, but it is so necessary for everyone to understand the details of our nation's history. So what can we do now? In 2007, the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement is passed and it provides compensation to survivors based on the number of years attending and cases of sexual and physical abuse is looked at on an independent basis. This also will provide funding for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada. The Commission began on June 1, 2008 and it is chaired by Murray Sinclair, a former Canadian Senator and First Nations judge. They would collect testimonies from survivors and study the practices over the decades to inform all Canadians of what happened in residential schools. June 11, 2008, a historic formal apology is issued by Prime Minister Stephen Harper on behalf of the Government of Canada to survivors and families in the House of Commons for their role in the residential schools. Provinces and territories would apologize in the years ahead for their roles as well. Over the next several years, the TRC would hold events around the nation to educate the public of their findings with a final three-day event in Edmonton in 2014. In May of 2014, a monument is unveiled in Winnipeg, Manitoba to honour the survivors of the residential schools just outside the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. In 2015, the TRC releases their final report on the residential school system with Murray Sinclair not mincing words as he calls it a cultural genocide. The report includes 94 calls to action on the path to reconciliation. A National Center for Truth and Reconciliation opens at the University of Manitoba with permanent archives of materials, documents, and testimonies gathered by the TRC. New Prime Minister Justin Trudeau acknowledges the 94 calls to action and commits his government to implement all of them. In 2017, the federal government announces an $800 million settlement for the 60 Scoop survivors. The path to reconciliation will be long and tedious. To fully implement all 94 calls to action will take decades, and we are only six years in from the final report of the TRC. For a current update, and probably the most important call to action, Trudeau Liberals have committed to paying for and administering the groundbreaking radar strategy for uncovering mass graves wherever they may be. Murray Sinclair spoke on this recently and encouraged the Feds to consult local reserves and tribes before doing anything it would be disrespectful for the government to surprise survivors and families of new discoveries without them being in lockstep. He also advised the RCMP to consult the locals before barging their way in there. Most recently, they assumed responsibility to tape off the mass grave in Kamloops, and while it is their duty and jurisdiction, Mr. Sinclair noted that they can be intimidating local families and being unhelpful at such a trying time. It would be in their best interest to work with the appropriate locals to ensure they are not overstepping. While on the subject of the RCMP, they did play a role in the residential schools as they would often enforce the capture of students or chase them down as they ran away. The RCMP did formally apologize for their role in 2017. So the Canadian government, various provincial and territorial governments and the RCMP have apologized for their roles but one body stands out, the Church. Pope Francis did offer a personal apology some years ago, but he has never formally apologized on behalf of the Catholic Church. The TRC did issue a call to action for the Pope to formally apologize, but we have yet to see it. The call to action would see Pope Francis come to Canada, along with the Catholic leadership in Canada, and issue an apology to survivors and families, as well as the Federal Chief of Assembly. Mr. Sinclair hopes for an apology in the near future. In fact, last week CBC spoke with the Archbishop in Winnipeg, and not only is he optimistic, but he said Pope Francis is open and willing to apologize on behalf of the Church. A few steps would have to occur first. He would have to be formally invited from the Catholic leadership in Canada to even come here. But before that, the Pope has organized a four-day summit at the Vatican, for the fall that would see families, survivors, and Indigenous leadership go and tell them their stories and what they are requesting apologies for. The Archbishop was hopeful for a formal apology in 2022. In summary, we still have a lot of work to do. As I said earlier, it will be decades before all 94 calls to action are completed, if they are at all, but my hope is that they will. In the coming years, I think we see more mass graves unveiled as this will be incredibly hard for survivors and families as they get answered for lost loved ones. The 215 discovered in Kamloops is just the beginning, sadly. It is estimated that there is anywhere from 3,000 to 10,000 children in mass graves and possibly more. It would be a chilling time for Canada. So what can you do to help in reconciliation? Pay a visit to a residential school in your area. Sadly, it is unlikely that you'll have to travel far. I encourage you to visit the memorial sites in Winnipeg. I know I'll be there as soon as the pandemic allows me to. Speak with survivors and families if they're open to talking about their experiences. Education on what happened is how non-Indigenous people can best help the situation. I want to thank you for joining me on this special episode, and I hope that you'll share it with a friend. Thanks for listening.